Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. America is considered by most measures to be a religious country. The vast majority of American adults believe in God or some transcendental being. Nearly 80% believe in heaven, and a recent poll from Baylor University indicated that roughly half the population prays at least once per day. And although there has been some debate about our measures of church attendance and whether it has gone up, down, or remained the same over the past half century, the percentage of the population who attend religious services in the United States is much higher than all other industrialized nations. This is great news for religious folks. America, in many ways, does remain a shining city on a hill for spiritual believers. But is all of this religious belief and practice good for the society as a whole, including individuals who consider themselves atheists? To put it another way, does religious belief and practice have positive spillover effects that are beneficial to our society in more ways than just those that fulfill our otherworldly longings? Well, one of my favorite guests and a longtime mentor, Professor Rodney Stark, has recently published a book examining these questions, and his answers to whether religion benefits society as a whole can be summed up in the title of this most recent book, America's Blessings, How Religion Benefits Everyone, Including Atheists. That will be the basis of our discussion today. I should note that Professor Stark is the co-founder and co-director of Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the fine sponsor of our podcast series, and he has appeared on our show numerous times. He is the author of a wide number of books that we have discussed here in the past, and to make the introduction go a bit quicker, I will merely point you all back to our website uh, where we will post links to these books and previous interviews. Rod, welcome back once again to Research on Religion. I'm delighted to be with you, Tony. Your book makes the argument that America's strong religious ethos benefits the entire society, including atheists, a rather provocative subtitle in the book there. And it benefits everyone on a number of important sociological measures, such as crime, health, civic engagement, intellectual life, and a few others. But if, if we're going to examine the impact of religiosity, both belief and practice on these measures, it's probably wise to gauge how religious America really is. And, and this has been the topic of a great deal of debate recently with polls from Trinity College and the Pew Foundation claiming that America is becoming less religious and that the percentage of people who categorize themselves as nuns, and that is N-O-N-E-S, or people who do not profess a particular faith, that number supposedly is rapidly increasing, particularly amongst the young. What's your take on this? How religious is America today compared over its recent history? It's as religious as it was uh, 50 years ago, which was vastly more religious than it was 200 years ago. This whole business about the increase in the people who say they have no religion uh, really needs to be looked at more carefully. And by the way, uh, the Pew people have been very, very careful about this and, and quick to point out that these people, while they say they have no religion, are in fact overwhelmingly people who pray and believe in God and whatnot. So as to what this means, the Pew people have been suggesting, of course, it means that the churches are weakening, uh, not particularly religion. But I think they're wrong about that, too. As a matter of fact, i got a piece coming out in the Wall Street Journal in a week or two that <clears throat> makes this point. And that is, uh, well, first of all, you know, these people aren't irreligious. Had they been asked, are, were they Christians, by the way, I think most of them would have said yes. But in fact, they were asked that what their religion was in the context in which people would have been answering possibly Catholic or Protestant or more likely Methodist, Baptist, or, or, or whatnot along those lines. And what these people were saying is none of the above because I don't belong to a local congregation. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's clear enough. 
but even there, I think that this is a this is an artifact of the decline in survey return rates. Back when I was a young sociologist at the Berkeley uh, Survey Research Center, the principle was that if you got less than eighty five percent completion rate on a survey, the results probably were no longer trustworthy, that you would have too much bias because we know the people who refuse to participate in surveys are not particularly like those who agree to participate. They're different in many ways over different periods of time. Well, that's fine, but the fact of the matter is no survey comes close to getting 85% anymore. Uh, at first, the declines began with uh, when people got getting answering machines, for example. Right. They were, they were you know, the, the, the wealthier people couldn't be reached. And it's gone on so that now the few people, again, are extremely responsible survey people. And they do, unlike most polls, they do report their response rate. And back in the late 90s, they were report, reporting response rates of... Uh, of 30, 35%, which, of course, is terribly low. Mm -hmm. But that's when they were getting about 10 to 11% of people saying that they had no religion. Their most recent poll that showed that 20% of Americans say they have no religion had a 9% completion rate. Wow. Well, we have no idea in really what, what any of that means, because it's not, a, it's not a, a valid sample of the population. Part of the biases we do know mm -hmm. is these people are, are 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 less affluent, less educated, and those are the people who always have been much less likely to belong to a local congregation. Hmm. And I think that's all that we're finding. Let me. I, I want to come back to the less educated, less um, wealthy individuals, but I, I I understand this whole idea of survey fatigue, and I get numerous calls all the time and. It, being the social scientist that I am, I often try to figure out what they're trying to ask me outright. And you know, the first question or two right. is often a filter. It's often a giveaway of what they're trying to do. And I can imagine you get called and you're busy and somebody calls you up and say, we want to talk to you about religion. Do you belong to a member of a local congregation? And from my vantage point, if I'm busy, I say, well, if I say yes, that means I'm going to be on the phone 10, 15 more minutes with them. But right. if I say no, <laughs> they're going to hang up. I feel like I've done my duty, and we all go on happily ever after there. So right. I, can, I can imagine some of that is going on there. It might be, although the few people uh, do have enough interviews uh, with, with these people who don't uh, um, belong, <laughs> mm -hmm. that we know that they pray and that they do this, that, and the other thing that are really, you know, they do religious things. So, uh, I mean, the few people are very upfront about the fact that these people are not irreligious, they're unchurched. Now, they believe that the unchurched is increasing, and, 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 and I don't think that, they're, that their data support that. As I see, no decline uh, in, in church attendance. Yeah, let me ask that a little bit, too, because it, it might be that the way these questions are asked to matter quite a bit. There's been an increase in the number of non-denominational churches recently, right. or... Huge as I call covert denominational churches, churches that do belong to a denomination, but they put bushes in front of the title Methodist or Baptist or and just say, you know, local community church. And I have some right. of my own ideas on that. But if I was, again, called to answer one of these questions and the question asked specifically, what denomination do you belong to? I would have to answer none. Our church recently split from a established denomination and we just went out on our own. We're just non-denominational church yeah no and and we know of course that these uh, the, 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 the mega churches most of them do not at least if they do have a denominational affiliation uh, they fairly much soft pedal it uh, yeah. uh, you know Gelbeck, uh, for example is, is a Southern Baptist church but I don't imagine half the people attending know that mm -hmm. you mentioned something about the people who say that they do not belong to a local congregation, you say that these are the less educated and poor individuals. That would seem to go against media stereotypes. It's, that, it's oh, the poor and ignorant who are not uh, going oh, to I church. Know. There, were, there were a bunch of ignorant poor people clinging to their guns, right? Right. So how, how, why do these folks go to church? Why, what are well, our findings well, on that? You know, this is nothing new. It's always been the fact that uh, 
the proper middle class, if you will, were the people who went to church. The higher your income, the more often you were in the pews. And, uh, you know, who were in the tavern Saturday night and who was in church on Sunday morning were not really the same people, even back in 1776. Hmm. You know, it's always been that way. And, and you know, it's, it's just that intellectuals are weird, and intellectuals in the media are the weirdest of the weird. <laughs> What what about this issue too about youth? We all hear that youth are losing their religion in record numbers. What's what's the take on that? I don't know. I've took on this so many times. I'm getting tired of it. <laughs> you know, I, I've talked about this back in the '60s. Any time you've done, anybody has ever done a survey, you know, going back to Gallup in the '30s, and you ask people about church attendance, and you ran that against age, you found that people under 30 were less likely to go to church than people over 30. And whenever you get an age effect, you can be looking at one of two things. One is that something changes with age, that people are more likely to go to church as they get older, or that social change is going on, and that's reflected in the younger people, and that uh, people are just simply starting now to go to church less and uh, you know. mm -hmm. well people keep interpreting it we're using losing the young people but the fact of the matter is these people always start going to, nothing ever changes in other words you get this effect every time because people when they leave home go off to be college students or young adults or whatever particularly they're unmarried, they sleep in Sunday morning. Yeah, I always had a hard time getting up Sundays. <laughs> you know, once they get married and get kids, they start going to church. And right. It's been going on as long as I've been studying, and that's been many, many decades. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, 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 it's an aging effect, not a social change effect. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go ahead and take a look at the, the general theme of your book. We've established that religion, uh, that the amount of religiosity, especially belief, but probably even church attendance, has remained pretty much the same as it has been, and if not, increased a little bit. Now, you argue in your book that religion is not only beneficial for the religious, the folks who are believing, the folks who are belonging and attending right. church, but it benefits everybody, even atheists. And I, I, folks like Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, or the, even the leaders over there at the Americans United for Separation of Church and State might take issue with that statement. So what is your basis in, in general terms for claiming that religion is good for society in general and, and atheists uh, as well? Because good effects spill over. Let me give you a, a, an example that doesn't involve religion. I think 47% of Americans don't pay income tax. But they benefit from the fact that the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people like Bill Meyer and Richard Dawkins don't go to church and jump up and down and claim the religion is awful. But the fact is that the social benefits, as we will sketch out, I suspect, this morning, mm -hmm. that, that flow from most people being religious... Uh, benefit them greatly, just as the uh, people who don't pay taxes benefit from the taxpayer. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at that. I do like that analogy because we do a lot of things that affect other people, even though we tend to think that they're just uh, constrained to our own personal life. Let's go ahead and break down the different sociological markers that you examine in your work. And let's start with criminal activity. Okay. I know that your colleague and co-founder of Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion, Byron Johnson, has written extensively about this stuff, and we have featured his work previously, and we'll go ahead and link to some of that stuff. But let's go ahead and review. What are we finding about the relationship between religion or crime, or if we flip the coin a little bit, conversely, say, pro-social behavior? Well, the fact of the matter is that religion has very, very strong effects on moral behavior. People who go to church are much, much less likely to commit crimes. Their kids are much less likely to be delinquents. Uh, and as we'll see, they're, they're much more likely to engage in a whole bunch of pro-social activities. But let's, let's stay with crime for a minute, because there is, again, this enormous, ridiculous stereotype that America is this crime-ridden society and that we're just staggering under huge crime rates compared to these wonderfully tranquil, socially justice kinds of regimes in, in Europe, that you know, those Europeans are so law-abiding and Americans are such a bunch of criminals. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. The reason that America is regarded as crime-ridden is several. One of the things I think goes back to the, the days of the Wild West, and all Europeans got the notion that we were all toting guns and shooting each other, which, of course, the West was remarkably lawful, as the truth were known. But right. the fact is, the reason we thought Europe had such low crime rates is they didn't publish any rates. Mm. And when they began collecting and publishing crime rates in the 1970s and 80s, particularly into the 80s, we discovered something. European crime rates are much, much, much higher than American crime rates. Scandinavia has burglary rates three, four times as high as the United States, for example. They have assault rates that are very high. Uh, <laughs> Europeans are, are simply uh, commit more crimes than Americans do proportionately. Now, that's surprising, especially in terms of violent crime. I might have expected burglary because they're all very polite over there. and you know. But, but even violent crime, huh? Everything except murder. And murder is a very weird little thing. Mostly it has to do with the fact that firearms are more effective than, than, than clubs and knives and fists and, and kicks. Europeans have very high rates of attempted murder. Mm. Uh, but they don't succeed as often as Americans do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, our crime, our murder rate is in fact higher than that of of Western Europe. Eastern Europe is another thing; they they have very high murder rates too, and there are all kinds of places with much. Uh, Islamic countries have much higher murder rates than the United States, but uh, but no, we're higher on murder than is Western Europe, but we're much lower on absolutely everything else. But what would you respond to when you hear people say, ah, yes, but America's prison population is so much higher? Well, well, that's because we're more sensible. Mm. The fact of the matter is that uh, when people are in prison, they're not breaking into your house. Uh, Europeans uh, indeed let people out and, and, and... to do it, and that's why their their crime rates are so much higher. For yeah, one thing, yeah, I'm reminded I mean, of um, uh, you know, recidivism is recidivism. They have it, we have it, but we have less of it because we keep them in prison. Yeah, I'm, I am reminded of, uh, I think it's a journalist, Fox Butterfield, who, who puzzled at the fact that uh, crime rates are going down, yet our prison population is going up. How could that be? And he just basically reversed the causal effect. The reason yeah. why they're going down is because the prison population is going up, not vice versa. Yeah, well, I tell you, some years ago, suddenly uh, uh, the burglary rate dropped, and uh, everybody was wondering why. And I shopped around a little bit, and I found data that showed that the average sentence for burglary, average time uh, that the judges were giving, had gone up about ele- an average of 11 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, with proper calculations, it turned out that basically accounted for the decline in the burglary rate. I couldn't get that published anywhere. Wow. Which goes also to this odd notion, and we talked to Byron about this, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, that it came as a surprise or as a shock to many scholars that religion would have any effect on the crime rate. I mean, this is something that my grandma always said. You go to church so that you live a straight life. If you don't go to church, you're going to be hanging out in the alleyways doing all these bad things. But scholars of criminology ignored this fact for a very long time. Ah, no, that wouldn't have any effect on it. They still do. The word religion doesn't appear in the table of content, I mean, in the uh, index of most criminology textbooks. And that's because academics don't like religion, and textbook authors are very, very scared. They don't like to put anything in there they think their colleagues will disagree with because then they won't adopt the book. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a nasty little business. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that the effects of religion are huge, uh, probably stronger than anything else. And so discuss a little bit of these. How, how does this causal mechanism work, and what have we found you know, through your own work and through Byron's work and others? Well, cities that have higher rates of church attendance have lower rates of crime. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go and look at individuals, uh, uh, people who go to church regularly are much less likely to ever get arrested than people who never go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and sure, there's, uh, there's some class effect in that, too. But the fact is that uh, religion does matter. I mean, you know... <clears throat> 
I can remember, uh, you know, the, the, the classic line on this is, uh, you know, there's two kids out there and there's an open window and there's some stuff lying there that they want and somebody says, let's take it. And the kid says something uh, and the other kid says, nobody will know. And the other kid says, but God will know. Mm-hmm. And that makes it, I mean, the point of it is if you really do believe in God and you believe in sin and you believe that there's an accounting, uh, then you can never commit crimes in secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, not just for scholars, but anybody who's ever been a parent should be able to know this quite obviously that you you can see the difference between kids who don't have a very strong moral code and those who do, and the behavior is just dramatically different, dramatically different. One of the... And, of course, the parents, Mm -hmm. uh, they're better parents in the first place, not just in taking the kids to church. I mean, it has to do with the the level of supervision, the kind of moral training, and all, all the rest of it that goes on. Yeah, that is true. It's not just Sunday school that happens, although right. some parents might be tempted to uh, pawn off the moral education every Sunday morning. But uh, most parents who, who do drop their kids off go to the regular services and, and then do carry that on through the rest of the week with their children. One of the other things that you mention in this chapter on crime is not only do religious folks avoid doing bad things to others, but they actually go out of their way to do good things for other individuals. And you found a lot of impact here in terms of honesty, niceness, and even with very specific measures such as blood donations. What do we find here? Well, you know, the, it's kind of a sad thing that we have many departments and schools of criminology, but that's really only half the field. What we really ought to have is, 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 is not a school of criminology, but a school of moral behavior. Because uh, not only do some people commit crimes, but some people not only f- don't commit crimes, they do good things. And, uh, you know, these are, these are as important to... There are people who, uh, who go out of their way to help their neighbor. There are the people who stop when they see somebody, you know, his car is broken down at the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who, uh, who donate blood. There are people who do all of these... these these socially beneficial things, and it turns out this is overwhelmingly uh, the work of religious Americans. The effects on blood donation are huge. And, of course, it helps that they've got church organizations that get to organized blood drives, but still mm-hmm. in all, uh, the, giving, the, giving of, uh, the giving of alms actually all around the world is highly related to religion, depending, not depending on... On the religion, in all religions, I found looking at the Gallup World Polls, uh, the, the people who, uh, who are more worshipful uh, give alms. It's uh, you know, it's part of the deal. It's part of uh, love your neighbor. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I mean, that's going to bring us up to our, our next issue of, of charity. And I have to admit, I'm not a blood donor in part because I just am terrified of needles. But uh, we do. We see churches always giving having blood donation drives. They also will run soup kitchens or closing drives. And and we can kind of see how some of this has a spillover effect. But there's still a concern out there that, oh, those religious folks, they donate to their church, and that the right. good deeds that they do tend to keep it compartmentalized within the religious community. There's even been uh, criticisms. Yeah, that there's been criticisms of you can't have this soup or you can't have these clothes or, you know, I, I right. doubt it's the case with blood, but you can't have this unless you belong to our community. And so they separate them out from the world. Is there any spillover effect to the general society, to the nuns, to the atheists, yeah. to, from right. this religious uh, charity? I've read it again and again and again that, well, religious people donate more money to charity. It's only to religious and very often to their own special religious charities, mm-hmm. and that these are often limited to their own kind. It just isn't so. Take all kinds of secular charities, okay? The backbone of the giving are religious people. Now, I suppose we could find some, some organizations that are uh, politically suspect in some way, and, uh, and, and you would find that the atheists were more likely to be the donors. But out there in the real world, the people who give to the Red Cross, the people who give to the uh, 
uh, are the same people who give to the Salvation Army. The people who give to uh, United Way are the same people who give to uh, Catholic Welfare, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, religious people are the big givers. Mm-hmm. Let me ask in terms of... By the way, there's a, I'm, all of these claims that I'm making, we should make it clear, I'm not pulling them from one little study or something. There's this enormous bulk of research sitting out there to be drawn on. For example, when we come to talking about health and whatnot, we're talking about thousands of studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should note that this work on charity, I've, I've read it, and Arthur Brooks has been, uh, he's the head Wonderful of the... Wonderful work by Arthur Brooks. Yeah. yeah, he's the head of the American Enterprise Institute. We've tried getting him on before. He's a pretty busy cat. He used but, to uh, be a symphony musician. Oh, did he really? Yes, he did. He played uh, uh, French horn in uh, the, the best orchestra in Spain. I did not. In Spain? Well, I did not know that. And that's an interesting guy. We got to get him on the show. But one, one, one of the things that he found was that uh, religious folks are overwhelmingly the folks who do give to these other types of uh, secular organizations. They not only do they provide money, but they provide in-kind services, including their own labor volunteering. I think uh, on average they are involved in one more civic or in, uh, civically oriented group um, than secular folks, people who don't attend church. Yeah, by the way, bringing up volunteerism is very important because volunteerism is an enormous part of the American economy, a huge benefit uh, uh, that, that, that we get. Uh, you know, if you've ever been around a hospital, you've seen all these people walking around, not only pouring coffee for the people in the waiting rooms, but, you know, helping make beds, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, volunteers uh, hold medical bills way down. Mm-hmm. of enormous importance uh, in all kinds of things. And overwhelmingly, uh, these uh, volunteers are organized and provided by churches. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it isn't just that religious people have this kind of moral conviction, which is true, but they also have an organization that facilitates this, that, uh, uh, that helps channel these kinds of impulses and indeed generate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, an immense amount of what they call parachurch organizations that work across uh, denominational lines to actually do this stuff. And my colleague here at uh, the University of Washington, uh, James Wellman, and I have talked about thinking about the invisible welfare that, that churches often provide. We see the welfare that the government provides, and we can easily numerically tabulate that because there's a bureaucracy that does it. But these these churches, these parachurch organizations, or just people who are connected to a church and say, you know, i got to go do some good deed. I'm not going to have it tallied. I'm going to be out there pouring coffee and, and serving cookies at the local hospital. None of that gets tallied. By the way, we should point out again, this is very, very different from Europe. And one of the reasons that people in Europe uh, with socialist governments uh, or, you know, a, a past of them, uh, feel the government, this is the government's job. I don't need to give anything. Mm-hmm. The charitable giving is... is, is, is infinitesimal in most of Europe. People just don't do it. Yeah, that is absolutely the case that that I have found as well. And I have, just as a a personal aside here too, I I love the volunteerism aspect of it because it allows people to decide and make their own decisions about what is really needed in society rather than somebody in, in London or in Paris or in the Hague deciding right. that this is the important thing, and so we're going to direct money to this, that individual needs have to compete against one another, and people have to say, yeah, I think you make a pretty good cause for that and compared to this, and it just seems that our voluntary efforts get allocated so much better in society. Yeah, well, you know, we just had this terrible, terrible tragedy in West, uh, this little town in Texas, just north, and it's 30 miles from my house. Mm-hmm. You know, the fertilizer plant blew up and leveled half the town. Well, the churches from around here have been up in West since about, you know, five minutes after the explosion. Up there working like mad, bringing clothes and bringing drinking water and all sorts of things, trying to help out. Uh, the federalities haven't got there yet. Obama came through and, uh, and was at some kind of a prayer meeting here for him and got his picture in the paper. Uh, but he still hasn't even signed a declaration of, uh, of, of, of you know, federal disaster. Mm. So, uh, come on, I mean, the fact is that things are happening in West because people in America take responsibility for their neighbors and go and help out. 
the you you brought up Obama and we brought up other civic engagement here as well, and that leads us to the the next aspect that you talk about in your book, which is civic engagement in political life. And this has raised some hackles amongst the pundit class, among journalists and such, right. that e you have either two situations, that the really religious completely shut themselves off from political life and they're just concerned with otherworldly matters and they're sheltered in their own con uh, conclaves and, and don't come out of their shell. Or alternatively, they're so hyper-involved that they seem to want to set up a theocracy and force kids to pray in school every other minute. Uh, what, what is the reality here that you found out? Well, there are several things. First of all, uh, in one little sense, by the way, uh, people have accused me of writing a book in which I show evangelicals are wonderful and everybody else sucks or something like that. But this isn't, the, the people, when I talk about religious Americans, I'm talking about Catholics, Protestants of all kinds, and Jews of all kinds. All Americans who regularly participate in religious services are the people I classify as religion, and I compare them with the Americans of whatever background who do not participate in religious services. And so uh, one, little corner, uh, so the, one little corner of the book, I do single out the evangelicals uh, because they have been so singled out by the media to compare them politically with, with other Americans. And the remarkable thing is they're not very different. Mm -hmm. Yes, evangelicals, for example, uh, support school prayer. So do all Americans. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that the press is always uh, probably just ignorant of. But in any event, religious people are more active in all kinds of civic activities, whether it's uh, voting or um, taking part in, uh, you know, whatever there is to do. Uh, uh, Campaigns to express, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, your civic uh, commitment and involvement. Uh, uh, how does that benefit atheists or anybody else? You know, is that just, I would argue <laughs> we have better government as a result. But, mm -hmm. uh, but in any event... Uh, um, yeah, that, that is an interesting question. I mean, in terms of all of this, the, the question that you raise at the beginning of your book, and it's in the subtitle of the book, about how this benefits atheists, I think is almost self-evident. And I almost feel embarrassed to ask this question. Well, how does charity and how does uh, political involvement and how does, you know, pro-social behavior and less crime benefit atheists? It's just it's just somewhat obvious, is it not? Well, right. I mean, atheists probably need blood sometimes. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they, they might need... Uh... I mean, some charitable uh, might benefit from some charitable activities. They certainly benefit by being safer at home in their bed at night than mm -hmm. if there was a much higher crime rate. Uh, you know, people walking home from work are less likely to be uh, uh, ripped off in the United States than in uh, Norway. And nobody, uh, you know, the guy who comes up to rip you off doesn't say, by the way, do you go to church or not? Oh, you're an atheist. Okay, uh, you're spared. You <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it doesn't happen that way. Every, you know, <laughs> people benefit regardless of, uh, uh, of, of their religious outlook. Um, let's go ahead and move off, uh, move over to our, our next topic. And I'm glad you included this chapter we're going to talk about here in your book, uh, dealing with success and achievement. Because one of the things that has always gotten my craw is that my students believe that the only way one can be valuable to one's community is to participate in some voluntary community activity, such as feeding the hungry. Or in, right. in my case, I see a lot of students on the campus wearing a ribbon to show their support for feeding the hungry and perhaps not necessarily feeding the hungry. But it's always volunteerism that is seen as good and not necessarily working in business. But one of the best ways to give back to the community, so to speak, is, is simply not to become a burden on the community to begin with, which basically means taking care of oneself and succeeding in whatever career path you take. The more successful you are, you provide services and goods to other individuals, that turns out to be pretty good. Here, too, in your book, you find that religious folks are doing pretty well. How is that? Well, first of all, there's a background effect. They're the, the, they're the sons and daughters of people who themselves tended to do better because they were organized. Um, they, they were raised in, uh, in, in homes with two parents, with parents who... who uh, 
who they respected, who taught them self-discipline, uh, who encouraged them to develop their talents, uh, who uh, uh, were looking over their shoulders when they were going to school to make sure that they were learning their spelling words and that they were learning to read. And, uh, you know, this, this whole business of a successful family uh, syndrome has an enormous impact on, 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 on what happens to you later in life. Uh, so religious people are more less likely to have dropped out of school. They're more likely to have finished school. Their kids are much less likely to drop out of school, more likely to do well in school. Um, they are much less likely to get fired. Um, they're much less likely to have ever been on welfare. Uh, they are more likely to own their houses and to own stock. Uh, it just kind of goes on and on. Uh, uh, and in many ways, it seems that once they take care of themselves, then they have the time and the opportunity and the, the resources to actually go out and volunteer and help others as well. Yeah, well, of course, then, of course, there's the religious community effect in which uh, many times they look after their uh, the people who are having a hard time for whatever reason, and and therefore those people don't end up on on welfare or 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 end up in desperate straits because uh, uh, their co-religionists take care of them. This is particularly pronounced among Mormons. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I uh, knew the director of their of their research department of, of the Latter Day Saints Church. And he built himself a house. He laid the bricks himself, and I mean, it was an amazing thing. But he built this great big house. And there was an apartment in the back side of the house, and I couldn't kind of figure, I thought maybe that was a mother-in-law or something. But that was to take in um, usually women with children who'd been abandoned or, or been recently widowed who were having a hard time, and to take care of them until they were back on their feet. I mean, he built this into his house. Mm-hmm. And and it was not unusual. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion of taking care of other people is uh, is, is an important part of uh, a sense of obligation that success is wonderful, but I but it it also uh, means we have some responsibilities. You mentioned educational attainment there. The kids are less likely to drop out of school. That, again, counters a lot of the media stereotype of sure. the regular church courses, and specifically, as, as you mentioned, the evangelicals. Whenever the media tends to talk about the religious folks, they think of evangelicals. But again, this includes Catholics, includes Jews, Orthodox Jews, etc., etc. Um, are, are these religious... Well, the, way, the evangelicals aren't a bunch of dumb, uh, unschooled idiots either. That's know? what I was going to ask. <laughs> no. I, Okay. Well, what about this issue of the homeschooling movement? It seems that all these these evangelical parents and and, and oh by the way, I should notice as I've been looking into um, homeschooling as we've promoted this podcast. There's a lot of Catholic homeschoolers yeah. and, and Jewish homeschoolers is becoming yeah. a big issue now too. It seems though, in terms of this, are are these homeschoolers just withdrawing from the the public education system? And what's going on there? Well, I think they're trying to overcome the educational deficiencies of, of the system. Uh, there are real problems, it seems to me, in the public schools. One is that kids aren't learning, and the other is they aren't learning the things they're supposed to be learning. And the other thing is they're learning a lot of things you've got rather that they didn't learn. But the, the, the history of homeschooling vis-a-vis uh, the outer world is kind of successful kind of an interesting story. Thirty years ago, homeschoolers had a very hard time getting into college. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't have the grades and, you know, all of that stuff. Today, they are the preferred applicants. You know, a homeschool kid has a better chance of getting in than anybody else because uh, the record is such that they know the homeschool kids are by far the most proficient. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they had parents, they probably... You know, their parents, their parents cared and worked. There's nothing like having parents caring about kids' proficiency to get it there. I mean, these kids uh, uh, learned something. Mm-hmm. Of course, through the years, there have come marvelous educational materials are now available to homeschoolers and whatnot. Parents don't have to make it up. They've got wonderful 
course outlines and, and, and all kinds of really good materials available. Yeah, the co-ops that they create, too, are absolutely yeah. amazing. And, and even in some places, the, the public schools are open enough to uh, let homeschool kids come in for sports or, or if there's a eligibility problem there. But at least come in to, to take part in the, in the band and, and mm-hmm. some of those things. And, you know, the fact is the... Uh, Homeschooling, it's unfortunate that it's necessary, but uh, um, I guess if I had it to do, if I were in my 40s and had, you know, school-aged children, I'd be very tempted to homeschool. It's, uh, well, that, that brings up the issue of what these kids are learning. They, they do learn something different, and a lot of parents go the homeschooling route because they are not happy about what the public schools are teaching. And, and again, this creates a lot of stereotypes about the intellectual nature of religious folks or religious homeschoolers and, and religious folks in general. And that you deal with a, a chapter in your book that talks about the intellectual culture that religious folks have provided. And I'm sure people in the media are listening going, intellectual culture provided by religious folks? Huh? That couldn't happen. And, I mean, you hear this from the new atheists. They've been bombarding the airwaves that religious individuals, particularly, again, evangelical Protestants, it's always the proxy for religious folks in in those circles, they're anti-science and and leading to a dumbing down of American thought and scholarship. But you even hear this in religious circles. In fact, the, the chapter that you have entitled Intellectual Life, you begin by citing a well-known sociologist of religion, Mark Knoll, uh, from his famous book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And Knoll starts that book by writing, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. What, what does Knoll mean by this, and is he right? Knoll's a fine scholar who's got, of course, one of the... the Great failures that comes with being a, an intellectual in intellectual circles these days, and that is that uh, uh, first of all, you think that people who are not really interested in uh, any longer concerned about Virginia Woolf are not intellectual, mm-hmm. and, and therefore they're not smart and they're not educated. Uh, I'm not interested in Virginia Woolf, and I think I qualify as an intellectual, but in any event, the notion somehow is that uh, these are people who lack culture, lack sophistication. Um, And I suspect one of the great signposts of this is to go to Christian bookstores and discover they have very few books, and the books they have are all inspirational. And the problem there is that they aren't really properly Christian bookstores. They're not bookstores at all. They're into all kinds, you know, they, they sell a lot more uh, uh, Christian mementos and, uh, and house decorations and whatnot than, than they do books. And, and you shouldn't, uh, just, you know, try to judge in the intellectual life of Christians by, by those stores. What you probably should do is look at data on who are readers, and you'll discover, in fact, that the preference for high culture is very highly related to religiousness. Religious people are much more likely to go to concerts and plays. Religious people are much more likely to have read novels, serious novels, in the last year. They're much more likely to to have gone to art museums. Uh, You know, the whole high culture stuff... uh, the only thing I found that they were less likely to do was to like rock and roll. Mm. And uh, for that, I cheered. <laughs> but in any event, uh, uh, it just isn't true. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, not too many people subscribe to books and culture, which is the evangelical uh, New York review of books, if you will. Uh, I don't find that lacking. I mean... Uh, uh, you know, certain kind of academic intellectualism isn't really about high culture, and uh, the fact is that uh, the religious people are the backbone of whatever support there still is for high culture. Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, you know, going back to what we talk about charity and charitable giving, that there are a number of in very uh, fine 
Christians and Jewish and Muslim folks who are actually donating quite a bit of money to support the local arts communities. The and the orchestras. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 certainly true. The one thing, again, there's a, you know, the, the, kind of the flip side of this is that not only are our religious people uh, Philistines, if you will, but that they're gullible, and we know they're gullible because they believe in Jesus. Mm. Well, if you want to settle for that definition, then, of course, they're gullible. But if you want to look around and talk about things like believing in Bigfoot and ghosts and haunted houses and that UFOs are visiting uh, our planet from other worlds and whatnot and, and tarot cards and astrology and all the rest of that stuff, it isn't true. Religious people are much less likely to believe in those things than our people who never go to church. Yeah, that's so one one very, thing. Very marked. That is one thing that uh, is stunning that you pointed out, and this also goes back to some of the work by Chris Bader, one of your former colleagues at Baylor. He, The atheist folks, or people who are less likely to go to church, they're the ones who subscribe to New Age crystals and uh, faith yeah. healing, or you know, different forms of faith healing, I should say. And and I find this again among some of my academic colleagues too, who you know say, "Oh, that Jesus stuff is silly," but they they end up at a, a UFO convention or something. Right, major. Well, you know, at Chester and Sandy's influence, a man who doesn't believe in God is ready to believe in anything. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> One of the next areas I want to go to, and again, this brings up some another guest that we've had on our show, Jeff Levin, who, again, is one of your colleagues at, at Baylor. Um, and one of the reasons I, I love your, your recent book, America's Blessings, is it encapsulates a lot of work that is going around uh, or that has gone on recently. And people can take a look at this as a uh, and see and find other places to go to. That issue is health. Jeff Levin has looked at more and more how health care or health issues have been related to religions and such. And I, it brings, for me, it brings up a, a very interesting anecdote that, again, goes, talks to our intellectual culture and to our pundit culture. And I brought this up with Je uh, Jeff Levin. A, a few years ago, I read a manuscript that linked obesity to being a Southern Baptist. And the study took one of these massive data sets that the medical profession has been compiling, and they found that Baptists, on average, tend to be ha uh, heavier than non-Baptists. And the author drew the causal con conclusion that becoming more religious made you fatter. And I, I was stunned by this research and its inability to figure out cause and effect. But um, nonetheless, there's this image that religious individuals spend more time on Sundays eating stale donuts and Aunt Mildred's greasy potato salad than the secularists who are out there on their bicycles and going to the gyms on Sunday morning. So what do we see in terms of health effects? Are those religious people spending too much time in the other world and, and getting fat and lazy, or uh, do they have some positive spillover effects in terms of uh, our society's enormous health? Enormous literature. Uh, the first book I looked at <clears throat> was an encyclopedia that included 1,200 studies, and before I could, two months later when I finished, uh, they had brought out a second edition and they had 1,800 studies. <laughs> so we're talking about some serious research here. It appears that religious people who go to church uh, have on average uh, seven years longer life expectancy. Now, wow. you have to control, or at least I think you do, for clean living, because they are also less likely to smoke and drink. Uh, take that out, and it's still about five years. So they must be doing something right in terms of, of health. Uh, uh, one of the things they're doing right is not leading stressful lives, because it turns out that religious effects are enormous on mental health. Mm. Uh, religious people are much less likely to be neurotic. They're much less likely to uh, um, to be stressed out. Uh, they just, you know, their lives are in, under better control in many respects. But but also there's 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 a great cathartic effect of being able to pray. You know, take it to the Lord in prayer is is the hymn. But it's also very good advice for psychological health. Uh, by the way, you're going back to that obesity thing. I was appalled 
the other day an issue of one of the religious sociology journals to see an article showing that Mormon women uh, and, and, and the more devout they were, the more likely they were to be overweight compared with non-Mormon women or, or within Mormonism, of course, the more devout. Mm-hmm. And they didn't control for the one enormously important factor, fertility. Mm-hmm. The women involved had had many more children than the women they were contrasting them with. Mm-hmm. And that's bound to, you know, that's well known to have an effect on on, on the weight of women. Mm-hmm. And the other point is, you know, so what? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's true. Actually, that brings up uh, uh, two chapters that you have in your book, which I found absolutely fascinating and really uh, expanded my horizons here, was the issue of religion on one's sex life. And yes, we do occasionally talk about the SEX word here on Research yeah. on Religion. And also in terms of fertility of, of uh, families. Right. And Let's start with the the sex question first, because you would figure that those prudish Mormons and those prudish evangelicals and those Catholics who are all uptight about sex, they just lead horrible lives, and it's really those those nuns and those uh, not N O Ns and the atheists, those swingers who are having the good good sex life out there in the clubs and all that. So what what's what's the situation here? Well, let's start with the worst of all the stereotypes: the Puritans. Okay. You know, we know that those old folks out off the Mayflower and all the others like them were incredible prudes. Not true. Mm. They were astonishingly modern and open and liberated, or whatever you want to call it, about sexual matters. Mm. Uh, they believed that women should enjoy sex. They thought that was so important that they kicked some husbands out of church when their wives complained that they were being neglected, uh-huh. sexually neglected. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the most amazing thing of all to read sex manuals written by and for the Puritans back in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, wow. They were remarkably modern and open, and they believed in love and affection, and it was amazing. And the same holds true. Today, the fact of the matter is that the more often people go to church, couples go to church, the happier sex lives that they report. Uh, the people who never go to church report very, comparatively speaking, very unhappy, very unsatisfactory sex lives by comparison. Um, and we're hearing more and more of that in, in a variety of research on, on marriage as well, is that the, the swinging single life is not as satisfying as it, it may have made, been made out to be during the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. And well, all, you know, all research has always showed that married people have a lot more sex yeah. than single people, which I can't imagine how that could possibly be true, can you? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> they just happen to be how in the same house. <laughs> yeah, how could it not be true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, one of the, the uh, to, to um, push this a little bit further, you know, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes junior in a baby carriage. You talk about a, a very important issue that I, that really flies underneath the radar screen and that you make a very strong case for that religious folks are really benefiting society, and that is the fertility rate. And this is something that is is very interesting because a lot of atheists, uh, especially those who are strongly into the environmental movement, have always argued that uh, excessive population is a bad thing for humanity. And so we need to have one kid or zero kids, zero population growth or negative population growth. Um, Talk about what you found there. Well, you know, I mean, if if you believe that we ought to, in fact, breed ourselves back so there are only, you know, two million people in North America, which some people propose, and that the buffalo now have reclaimed the entirety of the Middle West, if that's what you want, then you certainly ought to be opposed to church people because church people procreate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Religious people have kids. Uh, They stay married and they have children. 
um, our most remarkable thing is going on in Europe. As, as we know, most European countries are well below replacement level populate, uh, fertility rates. I'd say under modern conditions, you need a fertility rate of about 2.1. There's mm-hmm. 2.1 children per average uh, female. And the reason is that point one is to make up for infant and child uh, mortality. Mm-hmm. And that, at that that level, you you you, reta- you you maintain the population at its at its current level. Well, in Europe, there are a lot of places now with even as low as point eight and point nine, yeah. uh, which means the populations are shrinking quite rapidly. And if that were to continue, it means that in about another century and a half or so. There won't be any Italians in Italy. There won't be any Norwegians in Norway. Uh, whoever will be there will be people who've come from elsewhere where they had some fertility. Mm-hmm. But that's not really going to happen uh, because when you go inside these populations, you discover something. Church attendance is very low, let's say, in Scandinavia. But the people going to church are having a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. It isn't showing up enough to make make the difference in sustaining the population at the moment. But what is interesting is that as this goes on, Europe probably is going to get a lot more religious because progressively the population will be made up of the sons and daughters of the religious people. Uh, and as that happens, you will start having a re- probably if everything continues, you'll have a recovery. Uh, of fertility, because the population will be more and more made up of people who will have higher fertility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all very complicated in some respects, but but says you know if you, if you want humanity to go away, well then you don't want fertility. If you don't want humanity to go away, if you think that the human story is worth continuing, then you got to have some other generations. It's it's, it's really yeah, and there's even some more immediate effects here too, and that that uh, Europe is is coming to face and that uh, our nation might be coming to face as well as dealing with the the welfare state that the welfare state is usually built upon the strong backs of the young folks who are out there working and as the population becomes increasingly older the demographic pyramid shifts a little bit and uh, those younger folks and i i tell this to my students is that the younger folks are gonna if there's fewer of them they're gonna have to work harder to pay for us old folks and right. they get a little shocked by that uh, so yeah yeah i know it's uh, i don't know there's you know we have some educating to do i remember when i was at where you are at the university of washington I was standing around with a group of undergraduates, and they were talking about a small raise in tuition. And I said, well, you know, uh, the fact is that tuition pays only a small part of the cost of, uh, of your education. And the kids you went to high school with who went out and took jobs and didn't come are being taxed pretty heavily to pay for your college. Mm-hmm. And they said, we don't want the taxpayers to pay. We want the state to pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, I mean, <laughs> something had had failed at the University of Washington to educate these kids about where the state gets its money. Yeah, well, I'm I'm working on that, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of them. I can't reach all of them. Um, let me just finish up here with the the minute we have left. Right. Is if all these religious folks create positive benefits for society, including a, you know, and, and fertility rates, including mental health, including lower crime rates, and a, a number of other things, that, the high culture. What, what can be done to convince the militant secularists who ostensibly support better lives for everybody? I give them credit for wanting to have a better society. But what can we do to convince the militant secularists that religion is okay and it doesn't need to be blotted out from the public square? I wish I could answer that. Um, you know, I read a book like this, and the secular media won't touch it. Yeah, it's not good news. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, you know, you just kind of have to keep on going our our way and hope that they catch on. Well, this book is certainly a good start, and we hope that it does catch on in the popular media. I know a number of your your books, The Rise of Christianity and a few others, uh, the 
um, have have really caught fire, and I'm pleased to see that. And I encourage a number of other scholars who do research on this to mimic the way that you write in, in a accessible way that uh, the general layperson can read. Not saying that the layperson is not intellectually uh, engaged, because as we noted, they are. But rather, it's it's from our problem, the the high priests of academia who often create esoteric jargon that eliminate these findings and make it easy for media folks to ignore. Uh, we just hope that you continue it. And that, again, is what we're trying to do here on this podcast, is reach out to as many people as we possibly can to bring these findings to a wider audience so that they can get some traction. With that said, Rod, I want to thank you for writing your most recent book, America's Blessings, and you'll find links to that on our website. And thank you once again for being on Research on Religion. I was delighted to be with you, Tony. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.